Okay, well, let's turn together, if you would. Let's see, do we have the box? Great. To the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. I mentioned a while back that um, William Manchester wrote a classic three-volume biography, some of you may have read it, of Winston Churchill called The Last Lion. It's uh, well worth reading. Uh, one I'd highly recommend, especially the volume on the war years, the World War II years. In the first volume, though, he tells about Churchill's experience as a young soldier uh, before World War II, during what they call the Boer's War. And at one point in a letter back to his mother in England, he said this in a typical British understatement or dry British irony. He said, I have found that there is nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at to no effect. I don't know if you've found that. I hope you've not been in that position. Maybe you have. It's like terrifying and then totally exhilarating. They pull the trigger and nothing happens. Can you imagine? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, you can. And you've been in that situation. It's like we were standing in front of the firing squad and Christ, you know, got between us and the guns and he took the hit and we're still standing. And on top of that, they give you like totally new papers you, and you're set free. You've got this new identity uh, and uh, a claim on whatever is his is yours. Whole new life. It's what Lucy felt when she and Linus were uh, looking out the picture window during a thunderstorm. Lucy said, what if all the earth is flooded? Linus, oh, that would never happen. God promised it wouldn't. He sends the rainbow to remind us that we don't have to be afraid. Lucy, boy, you've taken a load off my mind. Linus, sound theology has a way of doing that. That's what we're going to find today. We've been seeing over the last many weeks that there is no greater uh, load on you no greater burden than the bad news. And today, starting today, we're going to see that there is no greater kind of lift, no greater exhilaration than the good news of sound theology. Though we so easily forget, which is why we need to hear about it again and again in the scripture. No greater relief than to feel not, you know, the death blow that we all deserve, but the life-giving, like, flow, the flood of grace that we don't deserve. There's nothing more exhilarating, we'll see today, than to be convicted of no, a total depravity to no effect. We come today to the, what the great expository preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse called the most important paragraph in the Bible. The equally great expositor Mark, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are no more important verses in the whole range and realm of Scripture than these. Martin Luther wrote that here we have the chief point, the very central place of the book of Romans and the whole Bible. Thomas Watson, the Puritan divine, wrote that we have in here the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. All that in ten verses. Verses that, as we've seen when we started this book, that have started spiritual revolutions. 
Paul knew a few verses are all he needed, and he drives them kind of like a, a, a stake into the heart of all the bad news that we've been seeing. A stake that plunges into God's grace, grace that can well up through broken hearts that have truly repented. We'll spend as long on the good news as we did on the bad, though it's just a single paragraph. Because I agree, this, this ranks way up there as one of the most important paragraphs uh, in the entire Bible. It's prefaced, as we saw last week, by two of the greatest words in the entire Bible, indeed in the English language, indeed in any language. Romans 3, starting in verse 21, two words, but now. But now for the good news. But now, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, God, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well then, if we emphasize faith, does this not mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. We'll be in here for at least two months. So far, we've seen man's moral state, uh, that of universal wickedness, what we call total depravity. But we move today to what you might call God's masterstroke in light of man's moral state, and that is faith righteousness. Truly, it's a stroke of genius in the faith of our face of our total depravity, in light of the total impossibility of works righteousness, faith righteousness is like this stroke of mercy from the one whose wisdom is unsearchable. How could he ever have figured that out? And whose love is unfathomable. God's master stroke. Today we'll see the secret of faith righteousness. And that is, after, uh, uh, after grieving over our sin condition, it's simply to believe and receive his justification his justification so far paul's goal has been for us to repent to repent not just of what we've done but of who we are uh, apart from god he knew that we need to see that there is nothing good in and of ourselves 
that nobody's good. But now his goal is for us simply to accept who Christ is and what he has done to see that nobody's good except by faith looking to him that all good comes from God, so you're going to need to give it to me. He begins in verse 21 by saying, but now, apart from the law, that is, apart from anything we do to live up to some standard, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law this is the he's talking here about the tyranny of works righteousness as though it's all up to us a burden that we can fall back into even as believers as opposed to the simplicity of faith righteousness as we sang a believing what he says about us we'll see it's the tyranny of performance versus the simplicity of acceptance of what he thinks about you when it comes to finding your deepest identity. We don't have to make it up on our own. We don't have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It comes from him. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That is, we don't have to manufacture it within us. No, it's been manifested toward us and in us and through us. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets uh, reveal God's character. They set kind of the gold standard, but that's all they can do. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What he's saying is this. God's law measures the standard for us but God's love manifests the standard through us through all who simply believe and then the famous verse Romans 3 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that is nobody's good except by being justified he says as a gift by his grace for the last three chapters we've seen just how how far we all fall short it's been all bad news really bad news that in and of ourselves apart from god nobody's good but now again the good news that nobody's good except by faith that all good comes from god beginning with the gift of being justified being justified paul says getting back to the heart of it as a gift by his grace that is the core of the gospel so what does it mean that we've been justified. Well, very simply, it means that we've been pardoned and for who we were and that we've got new papers that mean we're an entirely new person. He's pardoned our depravity, declaring us not guilty, and he's given us a new identity. Justification is a judicial term that's a picture. It conjures up a, a scene, uh, uh, the scene of a judge with a gavel, and when it hits the bench, he says, not guilty. The Puritan divine Thomas Watson put it this way, justification is a word borrowed from law courts, wherein a person arraigned is pronounced righteous and is openly absolved. God, in justifying a person, looks upon him as if he had not sinned and pronounces him to be righteous. 
It's already happened invisibly with those who have believed. And it will happen visibly, this whole pronouncement, at the great white throne just before uh, heaven and earth will pass away. Justification, you might say, is conferred on us uh, now in the privacy of our hearts as we do business with God. But one day it will be confirmed in a very public way. As Thomas Watson wrote, God has now secretly justified us, but at the day of judgment, he will openly justify us and pronounce us righteous before men and angels. And what a day that will be. In that day, we're going to see what it really means. The whole human race will be standing before the great white throne of God. And looking back, the whole of life for everyone there is going to seem like, like, like Sesame Street by comparison, like happy days compared to what's in front of them. They'll see that God uh, uh, let them off again and again and that they got away with murder in the face of the grace that they so took for granted. Like, like a fist in his face. And now they're being tried as an adult. They'll hear the thunder of great fire in the distance and the cries of those who had just gone before them. They'll be hearing like this weeping and gnashing of teeth fading into this fiery abyss. The scripture is clear about this. Never, never in their wildest dreams did they think it would come to this, though deep down they knew it. And now they see it. There will be no way back because there, <laughs> there, there, there won't be a world to go back to. In Revelation, it says that the creation will disappear in the presence of the creator. And John says, then I saw a great white throne, Revelation 21, 11, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away. All but the immortal souls of men will be in front of him. And it will be like the prophet Joel said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is here. And so it's like you have this sea of humanity and they will all recognize him instantly. It's like Michael Card used to sing, in a single lightning moment, a familiar face at last they'll see. The very sight of him will send them to their knees and they'll be looking straight down like when you, you know, when you can't look your parents in the eyes because you know what you've done. And his eyes will be like a fire that will see right through them, we're told in, in Revelation 1. And his voice, it says there, will be like the sound of many waters. It'll be torrential. It'll be uh, unanswerable, silencing all defense, rejecting all appeals because his judgment is final. His judgment is just. There is no higher court of appeal and there is no wisdom, Proverbs twenty-one thirty. no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. No excuses. And he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, for I never knew you. And then he will strip them bare. He'll take back all the good that comes from him alone. You lived apart from me, well, now I'll have to live apart from you. It's your decision. Like C.S. Lewis said, man will either say, thy will be done, or he'll have to say, all right then, have it your way. And then we'll know that nobody's good 
except by faith that all good comes from God because then we'll see what's left behind when he takes back all the good that comes from him. When he removes all that they'd so taken for granted, all that they took pride in that wasn't theirs. The scripture teaches that they, when that happens, they will be unrecognizable. It calls it their worm. And there will be animal sounds coming from them, the likes of which we've never heard before. Christ says, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. For if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, Revelation 20, 14, he was thrown into the lake of fire where their worm shall not die, Isaiah 66, 24, and the fire shall not be quenched. And then he'll turn to his right, <laughs> and he may even say, you know, but now but now he'll turn to those who have truly repented of what they have done and simply accepted what christ has done and the gavel will hit the bench and he'll say guilty under the law not guilty <coughs> under grace guilty in the old man not guilty in the new man guilty in the flesh not guilty by the cross, by the blood, by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who is in you, who pardons all your iniquities. And we'll hear him say, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And you know, you've heard about this all your life, but still you won't believe your ears. And you'll feel a shock of relief, maybe a flood of tears, because there's nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at to no effect. There will be nothing more exhilarating than to be convicted of total depravity to no effect over the thunder, you know, of the fire that we deserve. We'll see then that he's the only one in the universe whose opinion matters. And there will be nothing more exhilarating than to have peace with him forever. Because man's first need, as Luther said, is to find a gracious God. And we'll feel what Isaac Watts wrote in his great hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And whatever you've been going through, however deep it goes, or however long it lasted down on planet Earth, however long this covid crisis lasts if you know christ as your savior and lord no care compares to what you've been spared you've found a gracious god and so all is well but justification means something more than that it means something else has also happened not only does he pronounce us not guilty Yes, when we're justified, it, it's, you know, as we say, just as if we've never sinned. But it's more than that. It's just as if we've achieved sinless perfection in his sight. It's not only a clean record that we get, it's a clean record, again, with new papers. 
It means we receive forgiveness for our depravity, and it means that we receive a whole new identity. Thomas Watson again put it this way. What is justification? It is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. It's like you're a new man now. You're a new woman, and you, you have got the papers to prove it. Papers that will never pass away. It changes everything. It changes your bloodline. It changes your family tree, your next of kin, your place of birth, your vocation, your citizenship, your history, your very identity. You've got, you've got a new calling. You've got a new home, a new father, a, a new family, uh, brothers and sisters, a new heart, a new name. You're a, a Christian now, which means you have a new nature. Not only has he pardoned all your iniquities, justification means he's given you a whole new identity. And at the heart of that identity lies uh, the heart of what happened when you were justified. It what qualifies you for your new calling, your new home, your new father, your new brothers and sisters, and all the rest. And that is you've got a new character in his eyes. It's called holiness. We're saints, holy ones, which is all that matters in his eyes. And because of that character, it means that you are unconditionally uh, accepted and approved in the eyes of the only one in the universe whose opinion matters. It's called imputed righteousness, and it's, which means it's the way he sees you now. In jurisprudence, it's called a legal fiction. <laughs> if you're anything like me, that sure sounds fictional, right? I'm a holy one. It's a legal fiction, but in this case, it's a legal fiction that somehow is true. And what that means is this. He's pronounced you forgiven of your wickedness and legally righteous when really you're not. But you are. In his eyes, in his plans, and in his son, by his eternal decree that guarantees your destiny, you are. For those who he foreknew, like we saw in Romans 8, 28, these he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, character, holiness. And those whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's in the past tense. Glorified, past tense, that is Q-E-D, it's as good as done. Because that's how he sees you. He, and he decrees that it will be you. And his word will not return void. So the gavel actually comes down twice. Justification begins with forgiveness, but it ends when he pronounces you righteous. And the bottom line application, well, <laughs> if you're anything like me, it's this. You, we need to see ourselves as God sees us. Because as Watson said, this is of God. We're not making this up. It is of God. So believe it. 
but there's more. There are two sides to this coin. On one side is imputed righteousness. On the other side is what we call imparted righteousness. And you can't separate the one from the other. Imputed righteousness is justification. Imparted righteousness is sanctification, where he actually imparts what he's legally imputed. Imputed righteousness means that this is the way he sees you. Imparted righteousness means that that's what he's turning you into. All of which is to say, he sees you now as if you already are what you will one day be. Let me say that again. He sees you now. He loves you now as if you already are what you will one day be. Which is why the Bible says that in God's eyes we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, you have attained to all that matters in the eyes of a holy and a righteous God, the only one in the universe whose opinion matters. And all you can say is what we sang. I see shattered, you see whole. I see broken, you see beautiful. And you're helping me to believe. Who am I? I love that song. That the highest one, the highest king would welcome me. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. We need to let that sink in. Application, well, that's just it. You just need to accept what he thinks about you. And it's as easy as accepting what others think about us, which we readily do. <laughs> we quickly accept what they think, so much so that it's easy to, to live for what people think, right? Most people do this more than they know. I sure struggle with it. The strong and the weak alike, whether for prideful or for, you know, fearful reasons, laboring over what people think, soaring or crashing, based on it, whether or not what they even think is true. So often as someone said, I am not what I think I am. I am not what others think I am. I am what I think others think I am. <laughs> Too often I find my real self in the thoughts I believe others have about me. Is that any way to think? Is that any way to live? So why not find your real self in the thoughts that God has about you, which happen to be true? That you are accepted and approved in the only area that ultimately matters by the only one in the universe. One day all mankind will see whose opinion matters. That's sound theology that can take a load off your mind. How so? Well, my mother put it this way in a letter she wrote to me years ago. She said, in my own life, I've been 
more aware lately of angry or resentful responses arising in my heart. But I've been justified, and that means I'm not to identify with them as the real me. And that means I'm uh, uh, the real me, the shameful me. But to kill them as I would cockroaches on a beautiful wedding dress. Because in God's eyes, I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. I love that. Now let me stop there for just a bit. It's interesting that she would use cockroaches as her illustration. As I've mentioned to some of you, I hate them, and, and, and so did she. There are a few things I hate more. Uh, they, um, they, there, there were one thing on the mission field that we never got used to, and she was a consummate missionary for 50 years, and she hated them, and so do I. God love them, I, though I doubt God loves them. I <laughs> so, but... They're like the perfect image of sin, I think. They're horrible. They're the incarnation of evil, in my opinion, anyway. Which, of course, is just how we ought to loathe our sin. But we are not to loathe ourselves. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7, 24. He hated sin. But equally, he said, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me, Romans 7, 17. The real me, he's saying, is different now. The real me is who I am in Christ. And it's so critical that we get this straight. What difference does it make? Well, getting back to what my mother wrote, I'm, in my own life, I've been more aware lately of angry or resentful responses arising in my heart. But I've been justified, and that means I'm not to identify with them as the real me, but to kill them as I would cockroaches on a beautiful wedding dress, because in God's eyes, I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. And then she says this, I'm to cast them off as invaders, as filthy spots on an otherwise healthy heart. It is no longer I that, sin, that, that do it, but sin that dwells in me. She quotes Paul in Romans 7. If I look on my sins as integral, valid parts of my real person, I'm stuck with them. And to take action against them is like attacking myself. Rather, I'm to say the real me in Christ is loving and positive, but that ugly, old, indwelling sin is taking over. These attitudes are filthy clothes, hiding the beauty of my new person in Christ. And here I am magnifying them so that I lose sight of the flower of who I am, and my vision is filled with the ugly bug that's on the flower. And she's not the only one that that happens to. There it is. I love that. At the deepest level, justification is so fundamental to our identity. It doesn't mean you stop hating cockroaches. What it does mean is that you are not a cockroach. <laughs> it's the difference between guilt and shame. Between distress over what you've done and despair over who you are. Big difference. Guilt comes from conviction. Shame comes from condemnation. When you're guilty, you rebuke yourself for acting like a cockroach, as well you should. Shame is loathing yourself for being one. Being under shame is like Franz Kafka's story we read in high school, some of us did anyway, of the guy who woke up a as a cockroach. Can you imagine? Well, 
we can. That was the nightmare Christ delivered us from. A nightmare that's no longer true, so don't let yourself go there anymore. Don't let anyone take you there. And if they did when you were a kid, don't go back there. Don't stay there. And who they thought you were. And who they told you you were. And maybe they crushed you like a cockroach. Even if it was your mother or father who treated you that way, or some next of kin, or husband, or friend. Because it doesn't apply to any of us anymore who've been justified by faith. As the song goes, no condemnation. Now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Here's a prayer that sums it up. Why don't we close in prayer together? I glory in your holy name, dear Lord, for in Christ I am righteous with his righteousness. I am justified just as if I've never sinned. I am totally right with you. Thank you that on the cross Jesus bore all the guilt of all my sins, including past and present and future ones. Let yourself pray this silently. How grateful I am that because of what Jesus did, you crossed out the whole debt against me in your account books. You nailed the account book to the cross and closed the account. Now, Father, I bow before you as the judge to whom I am accountable as the final authority, the chief justice of the Supreme Court of all the earth. And I thank you, I praise you that you have said and your word cannot be broken. No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. The judge himself has declared us free from sin. How I rejoice that through Christ I am all right as a person, now and forever, totally clean, every stain removed, totally forgiven, no matter how great or recent a failure I've had to confess or how often I have failed. What amazing grace. What undeserved acceptance and favor. How wonderful that you ask me to do absolutely nothing to earn your forgiveness. No striving to measure up. No self-punishment. No prolonged remorse. No self-blame. No deeds of penance. That I don't have to sink down into regrets or into shame or into denial into ex or into excuses for things I do wrong. I'm so thankful that you don't hold a pair of scales and ask me to pile up enough good works to outweigh my sins, my failures, my unworthiness, that it's all by grace through faith. What an incentive to live a life that pleases you, that brings joy and not grief. I greatly rejoice in you, Lord. My soul exalts in you. For you have clothed me with the garments of salvation, you have wrapped me in the robe of righteousness and beauty as a bridegroom dressed for his wedding, as a bride adorned with her jewels. Lord, I believe, I believe what you say of me, I believe. In Jesus' name, amen.